Uh, tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 to 12, 10 to 12. And we'll be looking at Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the, the, the peril of partial obedience. But tonight, like I said, we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 uh, through 12, and I'll be reading a portion of uh, chapter 10, and then we'll skip over to chapter 12 and read a little more of that. But um, just to understand the setting, uh, throughout the history of, in, the, in their promised land, the children of Israel, they always struggled with uh, conflict among the different tribes. There was always some sort of conflict going on. There was disunity, um, and it went all the way back to the patriarchal age, Jacob, who presided over a house divided. And the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel had their share of contention um, during Jacob's lifetime. And you see the, the enmity of these half-brothers continue even into the time of the judges, historically, uh, biblically. Uh, Benjamin was one of Rachel's tribes, and they took up arms against all the other tribes in Judges 20, and we went through that. And, uh, and then also Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of, of Benjamin, and when David was <coughs> crowned king, David was from the tribe of, what, Judah, right? One of Leah's tribes, and the Benjam Benjamites rebelled, and that's in Second Samuel uh, two and three, and after a long war, David succeeded in uniting all the tribes, and basically, there was a lot of frailty in the union, and um, it was kind of exposed when David's son, Absalom, he promoted himself as the new king and drew a lot of the uh, Israelites away from their allegiance to David, <coughs> Second Samuel 15. And then Absalom set up his throne in Hebron, the site of the former capital. And later there was a revolt that was uh, led by a name, man named Sheba against David and the tribe of Judah. And the, the reign of David's son, Solomon, brought more unrest, unfortunately, um, when one of the king's servants, Jeroboam, uh, rebelled. And when he rebelled, he was uh, basically, Jeroboam was on a king's errand when he met a prophet, God's prophet, Ahijah, who told him that God was going to give him authority over ten tribes, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. And God's reason for the division basically was um, very definitive. God let it be known. He said because they have forsaken God, they forsook God, and they have not walked in his ways. He made it very clear this is why this is going to happen. Um, but God did promise David that his dynasty would continue, even though it would be a much smaller kingdom than it was originally, uh, for the sake of God's covenant with, with David and the promise he made there, and for the sake of Jerusalem, God's chosen city. And so when Solomon learned of this prophecy, what did he do? He wanted to kill, <laughs> right, uh, Jeroboam because, you know, there's going to be conflict. So hey, you take out the oppressor. That's what you did back then. And Jeroboam fled to Egypt for sanctuary. And you can read all about that in, in the Kings, 1 Kings 11. But after Solomon's death, uh, his son, Rehoboam, the one we're going to look at tonight, was set to become the next king. 
And so Jeroboam returned from Egypt and he led a group of people that we'll hear from tonight to confront Rehoboam with a demand for kind of being treated uh, different than his father treated them. And if you remember when we were going through Judges, I think we read this portion of Scripture, and hopefully you'll become familiar with it. But Rehoboam refused the demand. Um, Their demand was basically, you know what, um, if you want to get along with these people as the new king, you need to tax them less and be lighter on them. Don't be so overbearing like your father was. And um, we'll find out what his reaction was and all that. But um, the, the northern tribes basically uh, crowned Jeroboam as their king and Rehoboam made plans to kind of do an assault you might say against the rebel tribes that were up north and and the Lord prevented him from doing that and we'll see that in the text as well and so it, it, it kind of that's the setting of, of where we're we're picking this up in second Chronicles chapter 10 and here is his is Rehoboam the the king who is um, uh, going to be made king, if you follow along there in your Bibles, I'll just read this for us. Second Chronicles chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Verse 3, and, he, and they sent him, they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all of Israel came, and they said to the new king, Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And in verse 5, he did something that was very wise. He said, you know what? Come to me again in three days. He didn't make a snap decision. You know, the Bible says there's what? There's multitude and counsel. So he goes, I'm going to get some counsel here. I'm just going to respond to this. So the people went away. And then King Rehoboam took counsel. It's interesting, with the old men. Notice that. In a lot of churches today, they segregate everybody, right? You got, you got the younger people and you got the older people. And, you, you know, they, they never mix. Well, you know, a lot of older people have a lot of counsel, okay, that can really be shared with the younger people. And so, you know, we need to be, be aware of that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of wisdom even in this room when you stop and think about it. And so we're not a church that segregates old people, young people, but we really want to glean um, something from our older people. I remember a, a church in Redwood City, they were running out of room at their, at their campus, pretty big church, and so their decision was to take all the old people and bus them up to Kenyatta. Well, you know, they didn't like that. Why, why do we have to leave? I mean, you, know, you think about it, they're more frail, and you're making them go to these different bus stops and get on buses so they can go to their Sunday school class or whatever. And I just thought, wow, what are they thinking? You know, th- these are the, the foundation of this church, and they're, they're just kind of, you know, I'm not saying they meant it in any way, but I thought, wow, I, I don't think I would make that kind of a decision. So here he comes in Second Chronicles 10, and he, it says that he took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father. So this is the old guard, you could kind of say, while he was yet alive. 
saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? So the people came and they said, you know what, King Rehoboam, if you want to be successful, lessen the tax burden and the yoke, the hard work that we have to do, that your father made us do. And if you do that, um, the people will serve you. And so he counsels with the older men and they say, how do, how, do, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak words to them, and then they will be your servants forever. Speak good words to them. They will be your servants forever. So the older people are saying, yeah, I would take that advice. But in verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel, guess who? The young people, the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So he thought, okay, you, you think he's making a wise decision here. He's kind of getting counsel, but when he got the counsel, it wasn't what he wanted to hear. <laughs> and so he gets his friends together and says, what do you guys think I should do? And uh, basically, and he said to them, what do you advise, verse 9, that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke of my, that your, my father has uh, put upon us. And the young men who had grown up with Rehoboam said to him, Thus you shall speak to the people who said this to you. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say this to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. <laughs> Thighs, actually. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy uh, yoke upon you, I will add to your yoke. So he's doing just the opposite that the, the old folks told him to do. He's listening to his friends here. This is their advice. He says, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And they're thinking is probably, you know, hey, you're the new guy on the block. You need to show these people who's, who mean, you mean business and show them who's an authority and, you know, that kind of a thing. So, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. They came back, and he said, come back on the third day. He was a king, so they were obedient. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered them harshly and forsaking the counsel of the old men. Verse 14, King Rehoboam spoke to them concerning the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs, look at this, brought about by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Elijah, the uh, Shilonite, to Rehoboam, the son of Nabat. Verse 16, when all, the, when all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all of Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And King Rehoboam said to Hadram, who was taskmaster over the, the, the forced labor, he was the, the enforcer, you might say, and the people of Israel stoned him to death um, with stones. So he sends this guy out to deal with the people and any rebellion that might be happening. He was the taskmaster, and the people basically kill him. 
They killed this representative of the king. And, and it says, And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of Judah to this day. And so what does Rehoboam do? He gets back. He begins to assemble an army. And we read about that in chapter 11. We're not going to read all that. And God raises up a prophet. And he tells King Rehoboam, you know what? I wouldn't do that if I were you. I'm a prophet of the Lord. God's saying, do not raise up an army against this rebellion. And actually, he listened. He listened. He didn't do it. But he began to strengthen his defenses, especially in the south. And a number of the priests from the north, because um, now Israel's split. Got two tribes in the south and the other ten are up north. And so what happens is these priests from the north, they see what's going on in their country, and they, they defect from King Jeroboam, who's up north. He's the king up there now. And if you know the history, what happened up north was they began to set up idols. And, you know, uh, they began even to worship the calf and, and Bethel and all this stuff. And so these priests said, we don't want to be part of this. This is wrong. So they defected and they came down south so they could worship uh, the true Lord. And so look at verse 21 in chapter 11. It says, Rehoboam loved Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, above all of his wives and concubines. He took 18, I laugh every time I see this. He took 18 wives and 60 concubines. I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult having one wife. I mean, it's a blessing, but let's just be honest, right? And for you wives, it's probably difficult just to have a one husband, you know. But here, he took 18 wives and 60 concubines, and he fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. I mean, that's a big family. And, and Rehoboam uh, appointed Abijah, the son of Makkah, as chief prince above his brothers. So there's favoritism going on amongst the wives and amongst the children. For he intended to make him king. And he dealt wisely, verse 23 says, and he distributed, distributed some of his sons throughout all the districts of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes that he was over, in all the fortified cities, and he gave them abundant provisions and procured wives for them. So he's kind of paying them off. Just stay loyal to me and you'll have a nice life. Now look at chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, what happened? What's it say? He abandoned the law of the Lord. He abandoned the law of the Lord. And all Israel with him. And in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt from the, the, the Libyans, the, the uh, Sakim, and the Ethiopians. Okay, verse 4, And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. And then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. They're all gathered together because they're being attacked. And said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you into the hand of Shishak. 
and the princes, verse six, 6, of Israel, and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. And look at, this is just like the Lord, right? Verse 7, and when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to uh, uh, Shemaiah, and they humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Uh, nevertheless, they shall be servants to him. So they didn't get a complete pass on this deal. And we'll talk about this. It says that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. And he also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. They're kind of emblematic. They're symbols of success and wealth. And King Rehoboam made in their place, look, shields of bronze. I mean, would you rather have a shield of gold or a shield of bronze? <clears throat> and committed them into the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guard room. So it probably wouldn't get taken. And when he had humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as, to make a, so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, <coughs> conditions were good in Judah. Verse 13, so King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. And Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem in the city, the city that God had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was uh, Anema the Ammonite. And he did evil, for he did not see, set his heart to seek the Lord. Verse 14. Now the acts of Rehoboam from the first to the last are not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of uh, Edo the seer. They were continual, there were continual wars between Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam. And these aren't full blown out wars. These are like border skirmishes. You know, they come across and raid and then go back. It was just a pain. It, it wasn't, you know, a real threat to them, but it was just a continual like thorn in the flesh. Um, verse 16, Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his place. I know that's a lot to read, but you have to kind of understand the historicity of all this. You know, I think it was Henry Ford that said, history is bunk. <laughs> um, and sometimes I feel people in the church feel that way because they seldom read some of the books, the historical books, especially in the Old Testament. And if we don't study these books, we're going to be really uh, neglecting God's word. And I get it. Some of them are hard. It's hard to prepare for these things because there's a lot of history. And the way my mind works, I'm not real good at retaining facts. So, you know, it's, it's even more difficult. But it's, it's important. As a matter of fact, it's so important. Even in the New Testament, we're reminded of this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says this. Now, these things happen to them as an example. Speaking of what happened in the Old Testament but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so a little bit of background on these books, first and second chronicles in your Bible. Okay. Uh, in your, in your Hebrew Bible, they're one book. There's no first and second chronicles. It's just the chronicles. Okay. 
we, we divide things, we put chapters in and verse things. That's not inspired, that's just to help us navigate through the scriptures. And so, but even to this day, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. And they were written shortly before 400 B.C., 400 years before the time of Christ. And we don't know really who wrote them. Some people, historians feel that probably Ezra was a scribe who, who wrote them or, or a scribe around Ezra's time. That's not really important. Um, but uh, they, they kind of wrap up the recorded history of the Old Testament period. And that's why they're placed at the end of the Hebrew Bible. And so while the, the history in Second Chronicles, if you, if you read through the book of First and Second Kings, you'll see a lot of similar. It's just almost, you can almost parallel it right alongside each other. Uh, but the authors of those books have different purposes. They're not the same. Even though some of the accounts ring true, they ring, ring the same. Um, the book... The books of, of the kings show how the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, occurred because of God's judgment. And um, because the two kingdoms forsook God and followed idolatrous practices and, um, of the nations around them, which they were forbid to do. They weren't supposed to become like the people around them. The people around them were supposed to become like them, but they had it backwards. And so the book of Chronicles was written to encourage the, the remnant of Israel and bring them back to the true worship of God. That's, that's kind of the whole purpose, by showing that his covenant with David still stands and that if a nation will obey him, guess what? They will experience his blessing. And, you know, when you think of our own nation, when you think of our own country, You've probably seen it. You know, people can historically track, you know, the decline of our nation according to the decline of our spiritual values. You know, when you start taking prayer out of schools and you start, you know, uh, the whole abortion thing and you just, you just see it. You know, uh, in America, when, when kids would learn how to read, they would read primers from, from the scriptures. They would read, they would read the scriptures. That's how they learned how to read years ago. And now it's, you know, that would be illegal. I mean, it's, it's just so, so sad. And you see the moral decline all around us today. And some people, hey, we can make a comeback. Well, I, I believe that. I, I believe that God's not done yet. Uh, he won't be done until we're taken out of here and, and all that stuff starts with the tribulation and everything. But at the same time, you know, it looks pretty bleak. Would you agree? It looks pretty bad out there. Um, and so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing on the kings of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, beginning with Rehoboam, uh, down to <clears throat> basically the Babylonian captivities. Uh, and it's going to be, if you want to read ahead, you can stay in Second Chronicles and you read chapters 10 through 36. That's where we're going to kind of be in the next couple of weeks. And the, the, the person who wrote the Chronicles basically ignores all of the kings of the northern kingdom. And the only time they're really mentioned is when they interact with the kings of Judah. And so uh, some of the minor kings we're going to skip over, but we'll try to hit the major ones. And, and just remember, this isn't you know, just a history class. We want to try to apply some of the, the principles that we see in these accounts that we're going to read throughout the scripture. And so hopefully it will make a, a spiritual impact as well. So tonight we want to look at 
um, Rehoboam. And the central lesson we can le learn from King uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, is the lesson of the peril of partial obedience. Partial obedience. Um, we see, as we read through this story here, you know, you heard me say, well, that was a good thing he did, but this wasn't a good thing, right? Um, and he, he kind of sort of obeyed the Lord, and, but he also kind of sort of experienced the Lord's blessing. Uh, he sort of obeyed the Lord, so he got kind of some of the Lord's blessing. And, you know, that's like, you know, when you're parents and, and you, 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 you have teenagers and you say, they say to you, what time do I have to be home? And you say 10 o'clock. And they come in at 10.30. And they try to tell you, well, that's close. No, no, I said 10 o'clock, right? I mean, we know what, what our words mean, okay? And so if they came in at 10.30 and not 10 o'clock, that's not obedience. You know, they kind of obeyed in their mind. Um, and, and it's the same way sometimes in our, in our own lives. Um, you know, we, we want to follow God's will. We, we want to see what God's purpose for us is and, and all this stuff. But because of our fallen natures, what do we end up doing? doing we, we sort of obeying God and as a result uh, we, we kind of sort of obey God and then we go and do what we want to do anyway and so we have to be careful with that so partial obedience and I put it there in the in the outline is a peril that plagues us all and results in partial blessing if you're only going to partially obey God you're only going to be partially blessed by God and, and before we point the finger at Rehoboam at King Rehoboam, we need to realize that this is us. It, it, I mean, this is me, I can say. I don't know about you guys, but it, I mean, I see myself all over here, right? Because sometimes the Lord tells you what to do, and you kind of partially do it, right? Because it's kind of a pain or whatever. It's a hassle. So you, you kind of, well, I'll do some of this, but to do the whole thing, Lord, really? And so you end up partially being obedient. And even... You know, he, Rehoboam, he, he inherited a number of issues. I mean, this guy wasn't, you know, really raised, you know, in Sunday school. Okay, he, he didn't come from, uh, you know, a great family background, you might say. His grandfather, David, was a godly man in many ways. I, I think we would admit that. Um, he never dealt, though, with the weakness for what? For women. David had an issue in his weakness for women. And in disobedience to the law of Moses, David, what did he do? He, it says that he multiplied wives for himself. And so, you know, as if all of his wives weren't enough, then what does David do? David commits adultery, remember, with, with Bathsheba. And then after it's kind of found out, then he has her husband murdered, basically. So David, you know... Uh, God forgave David. Thank God for his grace, right? Just like he would forgive us when we repent. Um, but he didn't remove the disastrous consequences due to his, un, his, his uh, disobedience. And that's, that's a good principle to remember. Sometimes <clears throat> we can disobey God and, you know, and then we feel convicted and we repent, right? And God forgives us, but guess what? The consequences are still there sometimes. And sometimes they can be lifelong. So we don't want to play around with that. We don't want to play with sin that way. And um, 
David's sin basically wreaked havoc in the lives of his adult children. Uh, Rehoboam's father, Solomon, multiplied wives more than David. More than David had ever even dreamed. I mean, it tells us Solomon had 300 wives. <laughs> oh, God, it gives me a headache even to think about it. 300 wives and 700 concubines. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just crazy. Rehoboam's mother was a foreigner. She was an Ammonite. And uh, Solomon's foreign wives, what, what happened? They, they led him into idolatry. Um, and as a result, God told Solomon that he would tear the kingdom um, from him and give it to Solomon's servant. That was the consequences. But on account of David, God promised not to do it in Solomon's lifetime, but rather to tear the kingdom from his son. That's Rehoboam. And so when Rehoboam makes a stupid decision that results in the rebellion of the northern kingdom and the northern, the northern tribes, in, in, in ver, uh, chapter 10, verse 15, the author points out, I read it, it says, it was a turn of events from who? From the Lord. Right? This was from the Lord to establish his word. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. If God sovereignly ordained this turn of events, that's what it says, that's what it means, this was God's deal, then poor King Rehoboam, I mean, he's kind of dealing with a stacked deck, right? I mean, if God's going to ordain something, it's going to happen. So, you know, he was the victim here, you could say, of his father's disobedience and of God's sovereign ordained prophecy. Um, Surely God wouldn't hold him accountable for this, for doing something that had been predestined to happen. How could God hold him accountable for this? That's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery we're not going to resolve here tonight, I guarantee it. We'll never resolve that mystery. And you can't stumble over that point because God did hold Rehoboam accountable for his disobedience. Just like he, what? Holds us <laughs> accountable for our disobedience. And, you know, here's, here's the mystery that nothing, and, and this is hard to understand sometimes, but if you think about this, and you, you know, you can go out throughout the scriptures, and it talks about the sovereignty of God. And when it says God is sovereign, that means he's sovereign over all. Uh, the mystery comes that not even the rebellion of Satan, not even the rebellion of sinful people, nothing is going to thwart God's sovereign plan. See, we have a hard time kind of accepting that because logically, you know, the way we know the Bible and everything, we think, okay, here's, here's Adam and Eve and God created this perfect garden and they're going to live happily forever after. And then, what, the, the, Satan comes in, tempts them, and they fall. And then what happens in heaven? Oh, the Father, oh no, what are we going to do? You know, we didn't expect this. We got to come up with a contingency plan. Uh, let's see, Jesus, yeah, you, you, get down there, right? It didn't happen that way. God's plan is before even our, our conception, before, our, before time even began, because God is sovereign, and God is over time. He transcends time. So you, there's no today or tomorrow, really, with God, right? I mean, so in the, in the Bible even tells us, we're going to read some verses here that tell us even when it comes to what we've, talked about a couple weeks ago when we went through Passion Week and we talked about what Christ did for us and him dying on the cross. 
Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, if you want to turn there, this is, this is kind of an important verse that really points out um, the sovereignty of God and yet the responsibility, what, of man, right? And, and that's how it is. And it doesn't make sense in our mind, but at the same time, it rings true to the word of God. Look at what it says in verse uh, uh, of Israel. Hear these words, right? Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter's telling them this, telling them about Christ. He said, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See that? Who did this? God did this. Who put Jesus on the cross? God did. I liked, uh, I, liked uh, I think, John MacArthur in a sermon. He asked his congregation, who murdered Jesus? God murdered Jesus. I mean, God, God killed his own son. You know, that's hard for us to understand. And that's what it says here, to the definitive plan of foreknowledge of God. But then he says what? You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. So even though this is part of God's definitive sovereign plan that Christ go to a cross and die, he still holds accountable the actions of the people that did it. Right? That's why when we sin in our lives, we can't say, the devil made me do it. Right? That's what we like to think, right? Because, oh, I would never do it. The devil made me do it. <clears throat> Spiritual warfare, whatever. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. No, you, ha- you have to own it. You have to take some responsibility. You know, does it come from that dark realm? Definitely. But at the same time, you know, even, and this is a statement that's hard to understand too, but even our, our failings and our, 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 our sin and everything, that, that's all part of God's glorious plan. He's not the author of evil, right? And that's where we get mixed up. God doesn't make a sin. We, we do it on our own accord because we have a sinful heart. But at the same time, sometimes that's just folded into his plan for us. Look over a couple, a couple chapters in Acts, chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Act, Acts chapter 4, verse um, 27 and 28. It says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever, look, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. So sometimes God uses people to do horrible things, like take the sinless Lamb of God and hang him on a cross for his sovereign plan to be carried out. Um, Because God is a sovereign God, and he works all things, the Bible says, after the counsel of his will. Not our will, his will. Uh, Ephesians 1.11. And yet, at the same time, God holds each person accountable for their disobedience. And so, how does this apply to us? You know what? You may be here today and come from a horrible family background. You may have been abused as a child. You may have whatever. Okay, that doesn't give you a pass when it comes to your own behavior. But we live in a society that that's exactly what they, they teach and they say. 
you know. Um, and you, you have to be careful with this. You have to be compassionate. You have to be gracious. But at the same time, you know, maybe your parents or your family background was like, like Rehoboam's. Think about it. I mean, they were hypocrites. They claimed to be followers of God, but their lives didn't match up. They had multiple wives. God said, don't do that, but they still did it. Um, maybe your, your life was skilled by, or, or uh, was scarred by a, a sin of your parents, your mother, your father, and you grew up having to deal with that. You may have every excuse in the book as to why you don't obey the Lord. <laughs> We can all come up with excuses. But God still expects us to obey. And you and, and those around you will suffer if you don't. That's, that's kind of the overall message here. And so let's look at this first point in your outline. Partial obedience is a peril for us all. This is the first lesson I think that God really wants us to get here out of Second Chronicles 10 to 12 when we're talking about Rehoboam. Partial obedience is a peril for us all. And so we'll see this very clearly if you examine Rehoboam's partial obedience and spell out what it means. First of all, partial obedience means hearing what we want to hear, not what God says. Hearing what we want to hear, but not what God says. I mean, Rehoboam was wise, really, when this delegation from Jeroboam came before him and they suggested, you know, hey, you need to lighten the load. And, and, and Jeroboam, like I said, he didn't shoot off his mouth right away and say, oh, yeah, we'll do that. No. What did he say? He said, yeah, give me three days. Got to get some counsel on this. He asked for three days to think about it. And he was wise to ask counsel. He didn't go off and make his own decision. He asked for input. But see, where he, where he blew it, <laughs> and sometimes where we blew it, at least I have, is we listen to the counselors who kind of told him, you know, what he didn't want to hear, but then he found some people that would tell him what he wanted to hear. And those are the people we listened to. He wanted to listen to the people that he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear, right? And that's part of, you know, a counselor's job. You know, a counselor's job isn't to have you come in and lay on a couch. Oh, tell me all your problems, you know. Okay, well, great. We'll see you next, next Monday. You know, that's not a counselor's job. You know, uh, we've counseled. Ken and I have done counseling together. John and I have done counseling together. And, and it's, it's interesting how God pairs us up. Because we have different personalities. We have different solutions to what the people are saying. And, you know, God uses us as a team. I remember with John Worthington, when we would do counsel, biblical counseling together with people, you know, John is a very gifted man, he's, but he's filled with mercy. And, you know, I, I'm filled with impatience, you know. So we sit down with these people and they start telling their problems. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this verse would apply. This verse would apply. In my head, I'm thinking this. You know, and an hour goes by, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm getting restless. And so finally, you know, we had to have a conversation after a couple of these sessions. I said, John, I'm going to sit down with somebody for an hour. All right, you got 45 minutes. Give me the last 15, and then we'll move on. And, and, and we started doing that, and it was very helpful, right? Because, because you know, 
I wasn't as merciful and, and gracious. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that's how God pairs up people. But here, he wanted to seek the counsel. But he blew it when he just wanted to listen to what he wanted to listen to, and he turned off the other people he didn't want to hear. And the older counselors who had served Solomon urged a general approach. And, um, you know, it's doubtful. You can, you can always say, well, would their advice prevented anything? If he would have listened to them, what would have happened? Well, you know, we can't rewrite history, right? Um, I don't think it would have prevented a revolution because they seemed determined to grab power by any means possible, but maybe it would have forestalled the revolt or something, I don't know. But his macho reply, in line with the younger counselors that he received, it was kind of like tossing a match onto a powder keg. These people were already upset, you know, and the older people were saying, you know what, just kind of let things settle down, and, you know, and Rehoboam, no, I'm going to listen to these younger guys, you know, no, or I'm going to treat you even worse than my dad. Well, then, then, the, then it was on, right? I mean, the fight was on. And Rehoboam, he, he knew better, and, and the reason I say that was, you know, who was his father? Solomon, right? So his father wrote the book of, of, of Proverbs to him. You read through there, my son, my son. It's filled with exhortations to, to heed the counsel of, of the elders and not to be hot-headed or, or, you know, impetuous or whatever. But he probably felt um, that, you know, being this new king, his new leadership role, uh, he thought, you know, if I assert my authority and I establish my power, then, you know, I'll just squash any rebellion. So he took the counsel that he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. And we've all done that. I mean, no, no, none of us are above that. We've all been in issues. We've been in problems. And, and what do we do? We're in a situation we read through the Bible looking for that one verse that will support our view, right? Uh, when we pass up five that don't. And, you know, we've all been there. And so, uh, you know, we don't want to have that kind of attitude. Uh, we don't want to shop around seeking somebody just to tell us what we want to hear uh, and ignore many who maybe are giving good advice that, that, that you don't want to hear. So if you do that, you're falling into this area of partial obedience. So it means you're hearing what you want to hear, not what God says. Secondly, partial obedience means acting before you seek the Lord's mind, not after. All right, Acting before you seek the Lord's mind, not after. Uh, Rehoboam sent Adoram, some, some translations say Adoram, Ad, Ad, Adoniram, I guess, is, Adoram is the other one. Hadoram is the one that is in the ESV. So they're just two different names of the same guy. But he, he was over the forced labor, and the people basically stoned him to death. So, you know, uh, after that, Rehoboam hopped in his chariot, and he took off for Jerusalem. And when he got back, he started putting together an army. And he started thinking, hey, you know what? I've got to quell this rebellion. I'm the king. And he had a good case. As the king, you can't let subjects, you know, just rebel and not answer that. Uh, he was the king, descended from David, and these rebels had killed this man. He had every right to do this. Let's go get him, right? Hang him up. There's only one problem. He hasn't asked the Lord anything. He didn't seek the Lord here at all. So what did God have to do? God had to send him a prophet. And the prophet said, don't do this. You know, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I'm telling you, don't do this. And um, whether from obedience, from Rehoboam's mindset, or just practicality, he had enough sense to obey at this point. 
he didn't go through with the plan. Um, but it was only partial obedience because he still hadn't sought the Lord first. And we've all done that. We've all set out on a, a plan and only to realize, wow, you know what, we haven't even prayed about this yet. Um, we plan first and pray second. There's, most churches operate that way. You know, I mean, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, they have this grandiose plan, but they don't stop to ask, well, does this line up with what God would want us to do? Uh, so there's a big difference between formulating all of our great plans for God and then just bringing to him for the stamp of approval versus seeking him, right? And really asking, hey, is this, is this what God wants? So thirdly, it's not just what, hearing what you want to hear and not doing what God says. Uh, partial obedience is not just acting before you seek the Lord's mind, but also it means living in line with custom, not in submission to God's word. And we saw that uh, in verse 21 out of chapter 11. He took 18 wives and 60 concubines. Well, where would he get this idea from? Where do you think he got the idea from? His dad, right? And, and his grandfather, for that matter. Um, who got it from where? The other kings of the day. Because that's what you did in that custom. It was the thing for kings to do. Why? why? Why would they do that? Because it would show their power. It would show their wealth. Look at me. I got 60 wives. I got this many kids and I have 300 concubines or whatever it was. I mean, you know, it, it showed, wow, this guy's immense wealth. It was a sign of power. It fed their what? Their pride. I mean, that would definitely feed a man's pride to have dozens of, of beautiful women at your disposal at any time you want. There's only one slight problem. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God specifically commanded that the king should not multiply wives for himself. <laughs> Very specific command. Lest his heart be turned away from God. God gave the command, but he also gave what? The reasoning. Don't do this, because here's what the result is going to be. And guess what happened? I mean, why didn't David, Solomon, Rehoboam obey this command? Because it wasn't in the line with their custom. Nobody did it that way. A king who didn't have a large harem and many wives was probably the laughingstock of the Middle East. And in some countries, it's still that way. And so there's a lot of things today, even in our Christian world, that we do that are probably we do as a result of custom, customs within the church. And, um, you know, maybe even some customs that are contrary to maybe some verses in the Bible. And so we have to stop on occasion. We have to kind of reevaluate that. Uh, and so what happens? A church slips into partial obedience. They don't even know they're doing it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's you, you can see it, the mentality of, of certain things kind of deteriorating over time. It, you know, um, it used to be in, 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 the, the, the Christian environment and, and things like that, that marriage was honored, right? I mean, it was something that was really held up and it was respected and it wasn't, it wasn't a light thing when someone, you know, went through a divorce. It just wasn't. It was like, it was very serious. Uh, there was one president who ran for president and all the media was against him because he had gone through a divorce. 
back early on in our country. And yet, you know, you stop and you think, well, when Reagan got elected, he, you know, <laughs> he had some issues there, you know, and, and other people. And, and you see this downgrade, and I'm not pointing people, my point is not to point at single people that are divorced. That's not my point. My point is, is that our mentality about divorce has kind of been so watered down and so subdued that it's kind of come into the church to the point where you have, you know, two, quote, Christians in a church, and they're not happy in their marriage, and the Christian counselor says, well, maybe you just need to get a divorce. And they don't even bat an eyelash to it. As a matter of fact, it's not just uh, uh, lay people that are dealing with this. I read one statistic, it just blew my mind that it had a, had a statistic of, of people who go through divorces, like professions. And number one on the list was doctors. That was number one. I think lawyers were number two. Guess who was number three? Pastors. I was like blown away. I was like blown away. Now that probably encompasses all kinds of churches, don't get me wrong, you know, because statistics are what they are. But at the same time, that was staggering to me. And yet when you start thinking about it, you start going through some of the people you see on TV every week. <laughs> you know, some of these, I mean, that's what they've done. You know, they dispose of a husband or a wife and, and they get somebody else and they go on with their little ministry and nobody even says anything. And, and, and I'm just saying that, you know what, it, it, the customs, you know, can change. And very few believers really got divorced years ago. And now you have Christian leaders who are getting divorced and they don't even bat an eyelid to it. Um, and, and it's because of the, the, the downgrade of the institution of marriage. It's, it's because it's more important to be happy, right? I mean, marriage is all about being happy, right? I mean, if you're not happy, then why would you be married? Especially even if you are married, why would you stay in a marriage where you're not happy? Because you deserve happiness. Your best life now. Come on, get on the, get on the, the bandwagon, right? And so when you find yourself in a difficult spot in life, in your marriage, in our culture today, what do you do? You say, bye-bye, I'm going to go look for somebody else. But that's not what God says. I mean, God says very clearly, we hear it all the time in, in weddings, right? What therefore God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. And that's not meant for a guilt trip, for some of you who have been divorced and have gone through that. Sometimes it's, it's not your choice, right? It's not your, you're just a victim of that. But at the same time, I think that we have to kind of reorient our minds to, to the word of God and not just what the culture's doing. And, uh, you know, the big thing now is so many churches want to be culturally relevant. You know, I hear pastors saying, well, I want my message to be culturally relevant. <laughs> the word of God is relevant. Just teach the Bible. That's all you have to do. You don't have to come up with a slick little outline, and a, you know, a, a way to kind of, you know, bait and switch people. Just give them the truth of the word of God. Because that's what's not going to return void. It's not my words. It's, it's God's word. So it's, it's very important to realize that we, when you slip into partial obedience, you begin to live in line with the custom, not what the word of God says. Uh, the fourth thing here, partial obedience means diluting the worship of the one true God with cultural religion. Diluting the worship of the one true God with cultural religion. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 12. 
Um, it says it, 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 it took place when the uh, rule of uh, Rehoboam was established and he was strong. What did he do? He abandoned the law of the Lord in all of Israel with him. They forsook the law of the Lord. When did this happen? When they were strong. By forsaking the law of, of the Lord, it doesn't mean here that they totally cast it off completely and became total pagans. That's not, what, that's not what's implied here. Because just a few verses later, in verse 11, we read that the king used to enter the house of the Lord. So it's not like they said, oh, we don't believe in God anymore. No, we're not doing that. Uh, and in verse 12, we read, there was some good in Judah. See that? One commentator says, they interpret that as, there were some proofs of piety and some fear of God. So it wasn't total apostasy. I mean, it's kind of like our country. You know, I mean, we haven't turned into a God-hating communist country as a whole. You know, even on issues like abortion, it's split right down the middle for the most part when you honestly take an honest assessment of it. And so it wasn't total apostasy. Well, what did Rehoboam, Rehoboam uh, do here? It says that in, in Kings, 1 Kings 14, 22 to 24, it says that they added to Israel's worship all these abominations of the Canaanite nations, which the Lord basically said, don't, don't have anything to do with these nations. And, and what did they do? Um, one commentator argues that at first these were not totally pagan idols, but rather they were human inventions of worship copied from the pagan idols. So they looked at what the pagans were doing in their worship and they thought, well, maybe we could kind of bring some of that into our worship. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, what does the modern day church do today? I mean, you can go to some churches and, I mean, they have a, you know, a better, you know, rock show on Sunday mornings than, you know, most, most rock musicians. You lights and fog and all, all this stuff. It's entertainment. Right? And, I, and they may be well-meaning. They may want, you know, to minister to, to unbelievers and so they have to attract unbelievers. I get what they're doing, but you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute, are we compromising here at all? And it, for pretty soon you're, you're quickly polluting the purity of worship that's prescribed in the scriptures. Because you're, you're, you're wanting, and that's the problem with our churches today, they're more concerned really on a Sunday morning, I'll just say it, with evangelism than they are with edification of the saints. So I would say most churches today gather on a Sunday morning and the, the push is evangelism. That's all it is. And so for non-believers to be in a worship service, well, guess what? They can't worship God. They don't even know God. So what do you have to do? You kind of have to dumb everything down. And when you dumb everything down, that includes the Word of God. And so pretty soon you end up with a bunch of kind of friendly feeling messages that are devotions and, you know, plays and things to entertain. And they may all be good things. I mean, these are talented people. They do a wonderful job. I, you know, I've watched some of the services. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. You know, I'm blessed by it. But at the same time, it's like, well, where's the meat? You know, they're, not, they're, enter they're entertaining. They're not really edifying because they're focused on the wrong thing. 
The Bible says it was the believers who met on the first day of the, the week. It was the believers who gathered for prayer and for communion and for teaching and edification. And it was to the church that God gifted pastors and elders and, and whatnot to, to what? To edify the saints for what? The purpose of ministry. And so uh, when you get away from that, when you pollute that, when you bring things in from the outside, you're p- polluting the, the purity of the worship of the body of Christ. So we have to be careful. We have to be on guard about that. Um, we don't want to just uh, use God for our own personal gain, right? Uh, you know, as long as God makes sense and as long as he's part of my plan, then I'll do what he wants me to do. But, you know, as soon as he tells me to do something that's outside of my comfort zone, well, no, I'm sorry. The late Francis Schaeffer said this. He argued that the American idols are personal peace and affluence. We may not have little statues that we bow down and worship. Some churches too, but we don't. And, and, and most people in this room probably wouldn't do something like that, <clears throat> have something you, you worship as an idol. But I guarantee you're probably pretty concerned about your own personal peace and your own care and affluence. Um, and, and the mentality is really that as long as God makes us feel good, as long as we have peace in our lives and he gives us what we want, affluence, then, then, then we'll follow him, sure. Um, but we're not going to follow God um, if, you know, he's going to make it tough on us or we'll only partially follow him because our real God, our real, our real God is what? It's self. We have a default to worship self. And if the true God calls us to go through hardship or sacrifice or he confronts our, confronts our sin in our life, what do we do? We, hey, wait, wait, this is getting too close. <laughs> you know, um, no thanks. And we run for the hills. We shop around for something else that makes us feel good. And we live in a very leisure-oriented, laid-back, you know, low-commitment, luxurious culture. That's why you can walk through your neighborhood on a Sunday morning if you... For whatever reason, you wouldn't be in church if you're walking around on a Sunday morning, driving around on a Sunday morning. I mean, you see people out doing all kinds of things. They're not in church. Why? Well, they work hard. They work six days a week. And, you know, they have the mentality, well, we'll we'll attend church as long as it's convenient. You know, we'll give to the church as as long as it doesn't pinch our lifestyle, as long as we can afford the boat on the lake or whatever it might be. but, you know, don't expect me to be here every week and, and be serving every week. I mean, come on, right? I mean, that, that's the mentality. And there's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with getting away for a weekend or whatever, going on a vacation. I mean, we all do that. That's, that's fine. But if you only serve Christ when it's convenient and you only give when it doesn't pinch your lifestyle, I think you're in this area of potentially partial obedience. It dilutes the worship of the one true God. That fifth thing here, partial obedience means following God when you're in need, but forsaking him when you're doing well. How many of us have been there? I know I have. You know, wow, you're looking at the, you know, the checkbook and you can't make ends meet and you're going, oh man, we're going to pray about this, right? But then when, you know, you got milk and honey flowing and everything's fine, it's like, oh, we're not going to pray about anything, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's kind of, it can happen very quickly. In, in verse 12 there, or verse 1 of, of chapter 12, it says, when jo- Jeroboam was threatening Rehoboam from the north and, the e- and Egypt from the south, it says he sought the Lord, 
But as soon as the pressure was relieved, as soon as it eased off and he was strong, what's it say? He forgot about God. He forgot about God. Our Christian lives are really meant to be a life of dependence upon the Lord. That's what we're called to live out each and every day. We should never wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to conquer the world today and I'm going to do it by myself. And boy, I just, you know, no. We need the Lord every, every moment of every day. You know, we, we call people that kind of do what Jerob, or, or Rehoboam did here, you know. He sought the Lord, you know, when things weren't going right, but as soon as he became strong, he forsook the Lord. You know, what do you call that? You call it foxhole faith, right? Have you ever heard that term? People in the military, you know, they're on the front lines, and boy, the bombs are coming in, they're about ready to die, and they're in a foxhole. God, save me, get me out of this. I'll do whatever you want me to do, right? Foxhole faith. And God miraculously saves them. And then they're home three weeks later drinking it up and yeah, God's blessing on their mind, you know, out carousing with their buddies. Even though they made that, that, that cry out to the Lord when you're in a jam, but you forget him when things are going well. You know, the Bible gives us an indication of that in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, speaking <clears throat> of one of the churches that, it, that uh, John gives us a picture of. In Revelation 3, look down at verse um, 14. The angel of, of the church in Laodicea write these things, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would you be either hot or cold? But because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then look at what they, he tells them. He says, for you say, I am rich. This is what they're claiming. I am prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing, they were deceived, not realizing that you are wretched, <laughs> that you're pitiable, that you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Sad. Sad evaluation. And, you know, we don't want to get to that point in our lives. I don't want God to spit me out of his mouth. I don't want to become lukewarm. You know, it's better you be cold or hot. Um, God's evaluation, basically, here is like, you know what? You're thinking you're, everything's fine, but it's not. And sometimes we look at the outside of someone and we think, wow, they, you know, everything's going great. But really, you know what? They could be dying in their heart. We don't know. And so we need to have that proper um, valuation. So it's, it's a peril for all of us. Secondly, here quickly, the partial obedience results in partial blessing. Not only is it a peril for all of us, but if you partially obey God, you're only going to be blessed by God partially. Um, and what's amazing to me is, is the mere fact that God blesses us at all <laughs> when we partially obey God. And it reveals the multitude of his grace, doesn't it? But he, he, he did give Rehoboam and the nation a measure of blessing. You can see that in verses um, 7 and also over in verse uh, 12. You can see the, the measure of God's blessing that he met, met out there in, ver in chapter 12. 
says, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah and they had humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. And also down in verse uh, 12, it says, and when the Lord, and, and when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. And so God sometimes partially blesses us when we're partially obeying. It's his grace. Uh, but they missed out on so much more um, if they would have been fully obeying God. The first point here is partial obedience results in a weakened national, religious, and family life. When a nation is partially obeying, it affects them nationally, it affects them religiously, it affects the family. You think of nationally, a nation was divided here, and it never really recovered the influence it had under David and Solomon. There was consequences to their disobedience to God. And with the weakened nation went a weakened testimony from the Lord God of Israel to the other nations. And you think sometimes what's going on in the church and what the world thinks about it. Boy, sad. Our nation suffers because of partial obedience, really, of the church. And religiously, the glory of Solomon's temple was gone forever, verse 9 of chapter 12. Uh, Shishak came and basically ripped off Solomon's temple. The glory was the, the, the gold, the, the shields, and Rehoboam, the king, had to replace it with a bronze shield that was a cheap substitute. This is really a symbol of God's judgment when you look at it symbolically. Um, and in, in, in one day, partial obedience, in, in our day-to-day, -day, partial obedience means that an anemic church where the glory of God's presence is seldom experienced. And, you know, you, you see that all over the place. And then family-wise, partial obedience means a weakened family life. If you don't think that Rehoboam's family life was weak, I mean, think about this. How would you like to grow up in a family where you had, you know, he had 28 sons, 60 daughters, born to one of the 18 wives and 60 concubines, and, and you're one of these sons or one of these daughters. Um, no doubt they had all the material comforts they needed. It tells us that. Verse 23 of chapter 11. But I'm sure time with dad was... <laughs> not happening <laughs> right because he had his favorite wife and his favorite son so i'm sure time with with your dad in this situation was very rare and so partial obedience to god's word especially mingling and this is important for us to understand as a church too when you begin to mingle uh, worldly psychology or even all the all the the today they call it christian counseling okay it's just worldly psychology by someone who's a christian Okay, that's why here we believe in biblical counseling. Somebody comes with a problem, we take the Bible, we open it up, we say, well, here's what the Bible says. Here's the principle you need to follow. Okay? We don't want to mingle worldly psychology with what the Bible says about the family and try to deal with things rationally and emotional problems that people have. Because it's, it's, it's limiting God's blessing on American Christian homes when you do that. Because what are you doing? You're, you're, you're not believing that God's word, that Christ is sufficient to meet your needs. 
Now, with that being said, there are some medical conditions. People have mental issues, whatever. Then, hey, go, go talk to a doctor. You don't need a counselor at that point. You need a doctor, a medical doctor. But when it's a principle and word, word of God, you know, you don't need worldly psychology to deal with it. And so it weakens us nationally, religiously, family life. Second thing there, partial obedience results in the service of a more difficult master. I like this point because in verse 8 of, of 12, they thought it was tough serving God, <laughs> right? Uh, so he said, you know what, okay, uh, let them serve the world for a while. So God arranged that. See, we, sometimes we think it's tough serving Christ and woe is me and everything. Have you ever tried serving the world? The world is, is far more exacting in their, their mastery over us than the Lord. As Proverbs says in, in Proverbs 13, 15, it says, the way of the transgressor is what? Hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Do you think the world cares about you? The world could care less about you. God seeks to build you as a person, as an individual. He created you. What does the world seek to do? The world seeks to tear us down, to divide. God gives us purpose, and it fits into his eternal plan. What a wonderful thing. What does the world The world has no purpose for you, except trying to make you happy for a few years before you croak. That's it. I mean, would you rather serve the Lord or would you serve the, the world? So the world is always a, a more difficult master. And then thirdly, partial obedience results in continual hassles. And we saw this because in verse 15 it says that there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And like I said, these weren't, you know, continual giant battles. These were just little skirmishes. These were things that were just enough to irritate you as a king to take your attention off what you really wanted to do. It wasn't an all-out battle. That didn't come till later, until the, the reign of Rehoboam's son, Abijah, back in, in chapter 13. But, but Rehoboam, as king, never could sleep. He could never have any rest. So he's always thinking, wow, is this the one? Is this the attack that's going to take us down? You know, even though it was a little skirmish, you still had to send people out to deal with it. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves, do we see that in our own lives? Are we just having continual hassles, little things that just continually dig at us time and time again? And sometimes this, those things aren't even due to a specific sin in our life. Maybe, maybe it's God trying to make us more like Christ. Maybe God is allowing those things for a purpose. And, you know... Quite often we experience, I think, continual hassles in our life because of our partial obedience, in part, before the Lord. Um, at least such hassles should make us stop and examine ourselves to see if there's an area that maybe we're sort of obeying God in, and maybe that has to change. And so we ought to, we ought to experience his rest and his peace. So what's the solution? Well, first of all, we need to see the foolishness of trying to dodge God. We can't dodge God. He's absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign of the universe. Um, he even used here in our story, in our account tonight, an Egyptian king to do his will. Think about that. And he allowed that king to carry out 
his will as long as, as far as God allowed him. And then he said, oh, that can't go any further than that. God's in control of these things. If we try to dodge God and get our own way, what do we do? We only hurt ourselves. We only hurt the people around us. We miss out on the full blessing of God. So don't try to dodge God. Secondly, you have to humble yourself. You have to acknowledge God's righteousness in disciplining you through trials. This is what God desires to do. Jesus said so much, right? What did he tell his disciples? So you think they, that I suffered? Wait till they get their hands hold of you. You know, you're, you're going to suffer as a believer in this world. That's what we're called to do. Um, so often we think, well, you know, when trials come into our lives, what do we think? Well, here, you know, boy, I'm going to church and I'm giving to the church and I'm trying to do everything that's right. I'm following God. And then this happens. That's our attitude, right? How dare you, God? This isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Really? If God dealt fairly with any of us, he would send us straight to hell, my friends. We don't deserve anything from God. Even some, someone as righteous as, as Job had no claim against God when all the things came into his life. Because God is righteous in all his ways, including his discipline of us through trials and through tribulations. Sometimes we need to repent. Sometimes we need to submit. Sometimes we need to change our behavior. Sometimes God's just molding us and shaping us more like Christ. Last thing here, we need to set our heart to seek God. The priest who defected from Jeroboam in the north down to Rehoboam in the south had done this in verse 16 of chapter 11. But guess what? Rehoboam did not. Verse 14 of chapter 12. What's it mean? Setting your heart. It implies a deliberate, you could say sustained focus. A deliberate, sustained focus. This isn't something you accidentally or casually fall into. <laughs> you know, you don't just wake up one day, oh, I'm just going to seek the Lord. No. It takes effort. Uh, you have to have a fixed resolution to seek God through his word, through prayer, through teaching, through obeying his commands. Any doctor, any medical doctor will tell you one of the most difficult patients that they can ever deal with is the patients that do not follow their instructions. It's just frustrating to them. Oh, you have a sinus infection? Okay, here, here's a, a, a prescription of antibiotics. Now, there's 10 pills here. You've got to take it for 10 days. Take it for all 10 days. You're going to start feeling good about day five, but keep on taking these. If you don't take them, you're, you're going to get sick again. And how many of us have done that? I have. I don't need these pills anymore. And lo and behold, it comes back with a vengeance. You know, and you've got to humbly go back, well, I didn't really complete the, you know, what, what you told me, so it's not your, you're not your problem, Doc. Now, I'm not saying all doctors are right, but I'm just saying that's just a basic, you know, basic illustration. And so we have to be willing to do that. And, you know, even though we, 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 we miss out, uh, you know, we, if we partially obey, we're going to miss out on, on God's full blessing in our lives. Um, don't fall into the peril of partial obedience. Obey God, no matter what, no matter how tough it may get. And, and if you do, God will sustain his blessing his abundant blessing on you as a result well let's close in a word of prayer and then 
Um, if you want to, I put down some questions there just for the fun of it. If you want to discuss those or talk about whatever, you can do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts. Lord, help us not to be people who partially obey you or a church that partially obeys you. But, Lord, uh, we, we want to fully obey you in every area. And we're not going to do it perfectly by any means because we're not a perfect people. But, Lord, we pray that you would conform us continually to Christ. And, Lord, we pray for all who are here tonight, Lord. If there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would come to understand their need of a Savior, first of all, their need to turn from their sin to the Savior. And, Lord, that you would be, be gracious to them and show them uh, that, that you have made provision for their sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we know that it was a uh, sufficient provision because on the third day after he died he was in the tomb three days and he rose on the third day and and lord that was when he had victory over sin and death and we we thank you for that and when we look to christ and look only to christ for our salvation and we put our faith and our trust in what he did for us then we can know too that we can have victory over sin and death and so lord we just thank you for your word tonight pray you bless our fellowship we thank you in jesus precious name amen